blitz. It's a blitz. Welcome to our PBL Project Blitz series, where each month we are highlighting the work of some awesome teachers in the PBL classrooms. Every guest will share out one of their favorite PBL projects, and we'll get a chance to discuss the impact of these projects on the students, the community, and our guests. We hope you find our guests as inspiring as we do. Welcome to the PBL Playbook, brought to you by Magnify Learning, where we equip teachers with project-based learning tools today so they can engage and empower their students for the future. This podcast will give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom, just like you, and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. Now, here are your PBL Playbook hosts, Josh and Andrea. Gotta find a better way. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the PBL Project Blitz, uh, where each month we take uh, some time to highlight the work of some of the awesome teachers we have in our PBL classrooms. Uh, this month we're here with John Brewer. Uh, he's an 11th grade English language arts facilitator at the Academy at Shawnee. Uh, John, can you go ahead and give our listeners a little bit about your PBL background and, and talk a little bit about uh, how you got into PBL and, and uh, where you're at now? Sure. Uh Thanks for the introduction. It's nice to meet you guys. Uh, so this is my ninth year teaching. I'm going to be enjoying that decade this fall. Um, I started PBL about seven years ago when I was working at a school called the Phoenix School of Discovery. And that was PBL from uh, as, a, as a survival tactic for a new teacher. Uh, my students were, you know, the Phoenix School of Discovery is an alternative school. And my students had been pretty disenfranchised by the failure of, um, you know, the public education system up to that point. So we needed to do something pretty drastic and pretty different. So I kind of became the gamification guy. And then after that, um, gamification really quickly, you know, it is a great structure, but it on its in on its own doesn't necessarily increase agency for students. So gamification and PBL together are kind of like, you know, peanut butter and chocolate. You know, it's just two things that are good on their own that only get better together. So that kind of was my end for PBL. Did a lot of choice-based stuff when I was at Phoenix. And that kind of drove me into a space where I was picked up by Magnify Learning for a cohort this year. And that has been really, really valuable. So that's kind of how I got to this project. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this project with you um, as someone who also teaches an an English 11 course to kind of hear your approach and and some of the content that you're bringing in and how your students reacted. Um, So the project you're talking to us about today is called A Dream Still Deferred. Um, which is a multi-part PBL that you've been doing throughout the year. So why don't you go ahead and just start, give us an overview of what you did, some of the components, your driving question, um, your entry event, any community partners you used. 
Sure. So it ended up being a three part, uh, three part project. You know, I wanted to stop, like my goal was to do a dream still deferred as the core project, but it kind of grew into a dream still deferred followed by gatekeeping America with our Erasing of the sun unit. And now the tearing down the wall between uh, final product part. So my driving question when we started out was, is the American dream still at the expense of black Americans? And that driving question came from our entry event, which was watching the debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley Jr. from the 1960s. Um, I came to that debate because I'm a, a huge nerd and I was watching um, the new show Lovecraft Country and there's a snippet of that debate in Lovecraft Country and it was Baldwin and I have never been presented Baldwin formally by my education and I'm criminally uh, you know, educated at this point, but I, I never was, was presented Baldwin as a voice of the civil rights movement in America, partially because Baldwin is hard to parse or at least harder to parse and present in a concise way, which, which sucks because he's absolutely valuable and he's absolutely necessary to parse and get through where we're at right now. Um, so A Dream Still Deferred starts with that entry event of the Baldwin v. Buckley debate. And students view that debate and we discuss that debate. And we kind of talk about how Baldwin represents... Um, uh, he, you know, he's the poet of the civil rights movement, and he's parsing what, what whiteness is to black Americans during the civil rights movement and the nature of whiteness in America and then and the nature of the theft of, of dignity for white Americans that white supremacy is. And he, his discussion of that theft of dignity of, of white America that white supremacy does and the way that it destroys the souls of white folks is particularly interesting to me as, as a white folk. So, you know, and I'm from, I'm from Indiana and Indiana has a long and sordid history of sundown towns and the KKK. And for me, getting digging into Baldwin and uh, using Baldwin as kind of an entry event for me, um, I think that it was really important and I might have trail off there, but you know, that, that was just really important. So Baldwin presents, you know, a lot of connections to the current civil rights movement in America. And Buckley presents a lot of the same arguments that are being lobbied against the current civil rights movement in America. You can take much of what Buckley says about communism in an attempt to derail the civil rights movement in the 60s and apply the word socialism today and, or, or Antifa today and the way that we try to or the way that some people try to demonize the Black Lives Matter movement to dismiss it. Um, the civil rights movement was also demonized to dismiss. So that kind of that that idea that you're going to demonize your opponent to dismiss them ended up becoming the final product for the entire thing, it, and it ended up creating this through line of humanizing language um, that ends up being the the final product uh, for my students, where they're going to create a collection of humanizing language audio pieces, which will. What is humanizing language? Just kind of to you guys, what do you, what do you think of when you hear humanizing language? To me, it's, um, you know, adding components to, to recognize that the struggle that people are going through is happening to humans. So I know the example that I heard recently, instead of saying slaves, saying enslaved people. So recognizing that that is happening to a, a person and a human being. 
That's a great example. And I think that like, I think that example in particular, you know, grows from the, the more common use of the term humanizing language. If you do a quick Google search of dehumanizing language, you're going to get thousands and thousands of hits of people breaking down how this group successfully dehumanized this group and created a really dangerous in-group, out-group um, uh, dynamic. But if you Google humanizing language, you're going to get far fewer hits. We've done not a ton of great work in creating spaces where we intentionally humanize each other. You're going to get a lot of interesting stuff about prison recidivism and returning to the community from prison as an incarcerated person. But beyond that, there aren't a lot of really great things out there for humanizing language. Your example is really, really cool because it ties into the history of dehumanization and systemic racism in America. And, uh, but there's just not a lot of good stuff out there for humanizing language. So that kind of wanted my students to be a part of creating some of that, you know, lived experience, audio recordings. And what they're doing there is they're creating audio where they're talking about uh, moral problems and how, how they feel about moral problems and kind of getting other people into their moral structures. Yeah, I, I mean, this this project just sounds like it, it's an incredible example of PBL and an incredible example of like the power that we can have when we when we look at um, education as a as a platform to to give students a, a chance to own their learning and to to understand kind of the, the stuff going on around them. So I think I think a really great example of that. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the student impact? This isn't an easy topic to to bring in front of of kids, especially right now, and and quite frankly, especially in you know the location that we're in, um, you know, being in that kind of almost you know borderline southern states and and kind of looking at what's going on. Um, there's a lot of pretty strong views on both sides, and so um, talk uh, talk about the student impact, and then also talk a little bit about how you how you navigated some of those difficult conversations. What did you do to make it so that um, you know people could express their uh, their opinions, um, even if they were differing? Totally. So I think some of that, and and this is like the uh, the nature of the year. I think some of that is mitigated by the asynchronous nature of the conversations, and I think that this is a this is a project that benefited from online space and from people being able to curate and slow down the conversation from a gut response through the lens of the computer screen. So strangely, you know, normally when we have the anonymity of a computer screen to hide behind, we get worse. Uh, but in this case, when you're formally attacking these conversations and you give people some space to curate their thoughts before they share them. Uh, we had some really interesting uh, thoughts about, you know, back and forth about uh, the Baldwin v. Buckley discussion. And then at the same time, we had some really interesting back and forth about the redlining in Louisville. Um, I think that it benefited from being online to kind of to kind of uh, respond to that because we had more curating of people's responses. I think in person, if I were to, if, when I do this in person this fall, God willing, I'm really, really excited to do this in person this fall. But I think what we're going to have to do is create formal stances and then prep those before we have discussions so that people aren't responding from the cuff. And we're really going to have to hit norms very hard before we have those Socratics. That said, this is a conversation that students are living all the time in Louisville. The, the protests we had last year, Brianna Taylor loomed large in our opening conversation about a dream still deferred and the idea that, you know, um, uh, we are still a country that has two justice systems. And when you look at Louisville, it is one of the most segregated cities in the United States currently. And there, there are reasons for that with predatory mortgage lending and both formal and informal redlining. The most recent firebombing Louisville was in the 1984. 
um, that I found. You know, I was born in 1989, so that there's no distance, really. Yeah, that I think, um, you know, for something like this kind of topic to hit so close to home makes this project incredibly powerful. Um, and I think, you know, the relevance of the topic can, you know, allow your students to have the perspective um, and, you know, the experience. And I, it's interesting that, you know, your comments about the um, that asynchronous learning being a benefit, because I think, you know, a lot of times while there is a lot of opportunity, we see it definitely as a challenge. And so that's interesting um, to kind of think about it in that perspective. So how did you, you mentioned norms, how did you, for, for the way that you've done your project this year, um, create some of those norms and, uh, you know, get your students on the same page about how to have these conversations um, in a safe and respectful way? What kind of prep work did you do uh, to get them ready for that? So that's really important. Uh, we really had to start with a lot of discussion about bias and validity in news sources. And we had to find some common ground news sources for whenever we'd have discussions about uh, what we're talking about. It kind of, that was a, a necessity for the unit one, a dream still deferred. That was important for the second part, the gatekeeping America and the redlining discussion. That is the absolute world for the last part, because the goal of the last part is humanizing language with the intent to depolarize political discussion. And, you know, I wouldn't have gotten to that third unit were it not for the magnified learning structure, because I would have been happy with the redlining. I've been like, okay, cool. They know more about their city. They're more aware of the, you know, social political structure of um, the neighborhood dynamics in Louisville. That's neat. You know, if the more you know about where you live, the, the more informed you are when you vote and the better the outcomes for you and your community. That's what we do. That's civic engagement. But because we had to have those validity conversations and those bias conversations, um, we ended up getting to this space where, um, you know, we're not just putting forth humanizing language to make ourselves human to people who don't know us. We're putting forth humanizing language so that people can't dismiss our experience because it is as valid as their own. And when you do that, suddenly it gets harder for the people who make their money polarizing our country to do their work. Suddenly it gets harder to polarize when the person on the other side is a person. So that's, that's really the cool work that came out of this and that we're still in the middle of as we work towards our final product. Yeah. And, and it, it, like I said, it's just, it's exciting um, to know that we've got educators out in our country who are, who are tackling the tough issues and, and putting, putting the work in and figuring out how to help, you know, that next generation um, come up and, and ultimately be our next generation of leaders who've had these experiences that will then ultimately bring that, you know, that experience with them to the, you know, the, the positions that they take. So you talked a little bit about it. I just, I'm curious kind of um, how this or, or, or what specifically might be the case. Um, you know, what you, you talked about how Magnify, the structure provided, you know, through the work you did with Magnify Learning impacted the, the work on this project. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what this project has done in terms of your development as a, a PBL facilitator? Absolutely. So for me, I've always struggled to find a, a direction and end for community partners because I've always felt that, you know, the, you know, the students in the classroom are doing the work and it's a very closed circuit. And, you know, that's the whole, you end up in the silo. And by being formally asked to find community partners, especially for something as big as this, you know, I've reached out to 
the person who wrote the Louisville redlining article, and I reached out to an LMPD representative, and I've reached out to some U of L critical race scholars, and I've gotten some uh, th- of their thoughts back and interest in coming in this fall for being uh, speakers when we're back in person. So, you know, these are people who I wouldn't have communicated with prior to the magnifier learning structure. And the other thing is I never would have gotten to that third part. I would have been, I would have been comfortable ending at redlining, but because of the, you know, the, the idea of the end product kind of, it demands a real world audience. So what's the real world audience for humanizing language, right? Humans. No, it's too broad. So like uh, it has to have a specific purpose. What's the specific purpose of humanizing language? And that's where we end up bringing it back around to the polarization that Baldwin and Buckley were speaking from, you know, they were speaking past each other in a way because Buckley couldn't, couldn't see Baldwin, Baldwin's experience of suffering and struggle in Harlem is real. And, but Baldwin knew exactly the the degree that Buckley couldn't see him and he addresses it. So Baldwin's capable of saying to Buckley, you can't see me yet. And Buckley says, Oh, sure. I can. No, I think I, I really like what you said about, you know, getting to this end product and the, the kind of closed circuit that sometimes a classroom can be without the authenticity of PBL or PBL-like practice. Um, and, you know, you said the idea of that this end product demands a real-world audience. And I love that. And I think that adds a layer of authenticity. And the theme of that third section that you said comes out of the authenticity, taking down the wall between us, that wall doesn't just exist in the classroom. It exists, you know, in, in, in our lives as a whole, in our country as a whole. And so I think to create that authenticity and to show your students, like, I'm not just teaching you about redlining in history because it happened and it's there. And I'm teaching you the context of the divide that we have right now so that you can um, understand the world around you and and do something about it. So I absolutely love that. And I think that's so powerful for those kids. Um, So in, in terms of the community at large and getting your kids out into the community and bringing in community partners, how have you seen um, a whole community impact from the, you know, all of the stakeholders in this project. So for this year, I have mostly just seen it in my students, to be honest. Um, You know, I've had the people who've reached out to us and provided feedback and structure, but for the sake of, you know, being out in the community, there just hasn't been a lot of movement because we can't really get out. And there's not a lot of space to have those big group conversations beyond the Zoom meets. Um, I'm really, that's, that's one thing that I, I have for next year that I'm really excited about is finding a place to physically present these audios uh, files and finding a place to like uh, potentially work with, I don't know, um, one of our museums. Cause we got a couple different museums that might be interested. Frazier does some really interesting stuff uh, now and then on uh, the history of uh, the history of uh, Louisville or the Muhammad Ali. It'd be cool to have their audio somewhere where people can kind of walk through and get that humanizing experience and just hear them talk about, you know, morality and right and wrong and, you know, their experience and their dream and the difference between their American reality and this idea of an American dream. Yeah. It's, it's exciting to kind of hear you, you, you process like, okay, we got through it, you know, we're working through it this year in a virtual setting, but what does it look like next year when, when we're back and, you know, 
you know, hopefully we're back in person and we can have these conversations and, and we can kind of take it bigger. So anything else like that you're thinking like, okay, next year, I definitely want to do this, or I want to change this or, or make this adjustment outside of the, the obvious, like bringing that community connection in, is there anything else that you think, Hey, this is something I'm going to tackle when I, when I bring it back in person or, or this is something I'm going to do a little bit differently because it, it didn't go the way I wanted to um, this year when you tried it. I think next year I'm going to be more intentional with starting from that humanizing polarizing lens. It grew out of the project this year very naturally. And I really dig where it ended up. But I think for this year, it may feel kind of disjointed for my students to start with Baldwin v. Buckley and end up discussing the nature of polarizing dialogue in the United States a little bit, though it is, you know, they still stood at the polls. Um, I think that, you know, when I begin next year, I'm going to have more emphasis on that idea of humanizing language and how Baldwin uses it and how Buckley uh, uses dehumanizing language when directly addressing Baldwin in that speech. And we can talk about, you know, how it can be used as a tool to build those in-group, out-group biases and to guard those walls between groups. Oh, and the other thing is the wall between is not my, I did not come up with that title. That is totally lifted from Ann Braden's book, The Wall Between. I had a really cool moment while putting this together. Somebody sent me a copy of that book when they found out what I was doing because I couldn't find, it was like 70 bucks on Amazon as for whatever reason, because it's a great book by an actual abolitionist from actual Louisville. So I make it expensive, I guess, but like uh, somebody sent it to me. It was really neat. So that's definitely from reading Ann Braden's book and kind of hearing her talk about her experience of getting the Wade family into an all white neighborhood and then being bombed. So that's, you know, that, that, that title is, is lifted from Ann Braden because all respect to her. Awesome. Well, it sounds like um, a very appropriate inspiration for for that piece of your project, for sure. Um, So, you know, you are someone who right now is tackling some big issues. You are also someone, like you said, you know, you started doing PBL-esque instruction in your classroom about seven years ago and have kind of evolved on that journey and now are, you know, working through Magnify Learning. So as we uh, kind of wrap up, um, if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners whether it's about that PBL journey as a whole or about tackling some tough issues through PBL, um, what have you got for them? I think the nature of problem-posing education is absolutely necessary for education to be vital and to feel necessary and vital for students. Um, Problem-posing education isn't a new idea. Paulo Freire, the godfather of problem-posing education, understood that for people to gain critical consciousness about the world they live in and the society they live in, they need to be wrestling with the real issues of the day. PBL calls back to that Freirean spirit that Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks in, in Kentucky really I, I, I you know, uh, exemplify. And what it does is it allows for people who maybe have never heard of Bell Hooks or Paulo Freire to get some of that immediacy into their classroom and some of that, we say the word relevancy, but it really makes it immediate to students because it's not just the, the classroom, it's not just English, but it's the real world that they're surrounded by when they leave the classroom that the English lesson is situated in. So, I mean, all power to you. Good luck. Have fun. GLHF. It is a really, really worthy use of your time as an educator to pursue this kind of pedagogy. 
Yeah, we I don't I, we couldn't agree more, and I, I think those of us who've, who've embarked in PBL have, have learned that it just it it transforms teaching and learning in your space, and and it really I think it makes us all better better educators as we're constantly thinking and changing. So, John, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk a little bit about your project. I'm excited to hear more about how the rest of this year goes, and then maybe even how it goes next year because I, I think the work you're doing is phenomenal. So, thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing some of your thoughts with our our listeners. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's been a great talking. Ready, break. Thanks again for joining Josh and Andrea for the PBL Playbook, where we give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom just like you and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. If you want to reach the pod, you can tweet at AskGIEBS, at MissB103, and at Magnify Learning, or you can email the PBL Playbook at magnifylearning.org with any questions, thoughts, or ideas you have. Also be sure to show Josh and Andrea some PBL love by rating, reviewing, and sharing the PBL Playbook with other educators. Yeah.